And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Grant McCracken to the program today. Grant is an anthropologist and author who researches culture and commerce. His previous books include Culture and Consumption, Plenitude, and Chief Culture Officer. Today we'll be discussing his most recent title, Return of the Artisan, How America Went from Industrial to Handmade, which is published by Simon Element, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Now, Grant, what does the artisan movement have to offer us beyond lumber sexuals and pricey craft cocktails? I think it suggests a way we can address some of the failings of an industrial economy and move towards what I like sometimes like to call a cruelty-free capitalism. That is to say, an approach to making and buying and selling things that is less dominated by the things we found irksome after World War II the era of mass production and mass marketing and mass media, the artisanal approach, I think, scales everything down and it changes the way in which we interact with producers and with consumers and and at the point of sale. So I think it has lots of things to offer. Now let's go back to the beginning. America was consumed by a war. Industrial production was viewed as threatening the well-being of people. And along came the arts and crafts movement of the 1860s. Have you studied that movement, and are there any lessons that we can learn from that for our current wave of artisanal production? I didn't make that a particular topic during the book. As an anthropologist, my time scale is is wide, is, is deep, which is to say, I think about the artisanal moment beginning in, in the dawn of human history when human beings are making their way on the planet, and everything then was artisanal, everything was done by hand, I describe in the book, a stone cutter that was used to separate meat from skin, maybe as many as 40,000 years ago. I haven't had it dated. I found it kicking around on my beach here in Connecticut. We've been artisanal for virtually the whole of our existence on the planet. And I think, which makes exceptional, those several couple of hundred years, it's not clear when we should begin the industrial moment, but some people say the 16th century, some people say, no, you have to wait till the 18th century. But in any case, that piece of the human story is relatively brief. But it is interesting that we have gone through this movement kind of before, almost 100 years ago from the start of your story with the, the whole Earth catalog. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it was sort of a minority opinion all that while, treasured by a relatively small group of people in our culture. And so it's been interesting to see in the last 50 years, a sudden adoption that brings it to many people and into something close to the the mainstream of contemporary culture. For some of our younger listeners, can you tell us about the Whole Earth Catalog and, and what role it plays in this culture? I think it is the work of Stuart Brand, who is an astounding guy. It's so much fun to write about him. In the book, you know, he begins as actually a paratrooper and gets out of the army just as the hippie revolution is breaking. He becomes a hippie, but before long, he can see the inadequacies of the hippie movement and begins to take an interest in the emergence of tech in Northern California, where you suddenly get people doing remarkable things with the computer, the digital technology that's just emerging. So Some people say of that whole earth catalog that it was the way that Stuart Brand almost single-handedly persuaded hippies to stop fearing technology and and to begin embracing the, the possibilities there. And some people actually argue that Northern California was the birthplace of the computer revolution because Stuart Brand achieved that victory. 
it seems to almost be in an opposition a little bit, industrial computer design with this more artisanal thing. Yeah, absolutely. I guess in the early days, people looked at that technology and thought, oh my God, you could have a distributed economy. You don't have to have giant corporations controlling things. You don't have to, all of that mass marketing and mass production. We can use this technology to take the mass out of the culture of the 1970s. And you know, it was slow start. But now, especially with Web3, we can see that prospect growing ever more evident, ever more plausible. In that kind of Bay Area, we also get Alice Waters and her revolutionary restaurant Chez Panisse. Absolutely. And I like to think of her as the, I'm sure she would hate this comparison. Probably everyone hates this comparison, but I think technically it's it's a good way to describe how important she is to American culture. In a sense, she is our Mao. We think about what Mao meant to China. And we take for granted that his transformation is terrifying and, and ugly as it was for some purposes, ended up transforming the face and not just the face of China in remarkable ways. And I think you could say the same is true of Alice Waters. You know, she begins with starting that little restaurant in Northern California, Chez Panisse in 71. And from that platform, from that launch pad, she creates a restaurant that is a proof of the new concept. She trains wave after wave of chefs, most of whom go off into America and create Chez Panisses of, of their own. You know, before you knew it, Pittsburgh had an exquisite restaurant where before it had not. So her influence, I think, is just astounding. And, and so I try to give her all the credit I can in the book. But of course, this is one of those things, it recruits so powerfully that it brings in lots and lots of people. You think about that wave upon wave of chefs coming out of Northern California and setting up restaurants there to convert people into foodies who would go home and convert their families into foodies and would exercise a kind of foodie influence on their local communities. So it really was an astonishing scaling up of influence that begins with one woman, one restaurant, and then just pours across the country. But with many of these farm-to-table restaurants, they're, for most people, a special occasion treat. They're not some place they could go to every week because the cost is significant. Yeah, there's no question that we have yet to kind of figure out that particular problem. But I think in some communities, at least now, the cost of artisanal organic farming is beginning to approach the costs of, of more conventional farming. So I think we're getting there. You know, it's a simple question of the scale of the supply, the greater it becomes, the less expensive it becomes. So I think we're moving there. You're absolutely right. Many farm-to-table restaurants are the domain of, of the elites. And that's a great challenge that we, we speak of food deserts in the country. There are huge numbers of people who do not have access to the kinds of cuisines and the kinds of foodstuffs that are so important to the artisanal revolution. Indeed, who will not have heard of Alice Waters, nor anything about the artisanal revolution. So that work is yet to come. One of the good things about Waters is that she persuaded many thousands of elementary schools to create a kind of victory garden on the school ground um, where kids could learn about fresh food and, and organic farming. So I think the work is happening, but everyone, I think, wishes it would happen faster. You coined the concept of the Diderot concept and spiraling of consumption. How does the identification of these artisanal things as desirable consumer goods feed into that, and how is it in opposition with a consumerist spiral? 
The Diderot effect says at a certain moment in the life of a culture, you get constellations of things, ways of acting, ways of dressing, ways of eating, ways of producing, ways of consuming. And until you get that Diderot effect actually establishing itself, what's happening in terms of innovation in a culture is all pretty one-off. You've got an innovation here, you've got an innovation there, but you do not have a coherence and you don't have the kind of momentum and the diffusion effect that you really want to have that you get from a coherence. Sorry, that's a little abstract. What I'm trying to say is sometimes innovation just comes in ones or twos. It's when it comes in groups that it's capable of colonizing entire parts of the world. And that's what we're just seeing happening now with the artisanal effect. And it seems like it comes with the democratization of production and where smaller people are able to make some income from that, that the profit shifts way upwards. And so you did mention people like driving for Uber and Lyft, but you know those are the company, they are making the bulk of the profit if they ever start to turn a profit. And the way music production has become democratized, and now it's the distributors with your Amazon and your Apple Music, and those are the people that are really making the money from music production nowadays and not the producers. And that's, I think, the big hope for Web3, for the metaverse, for the next step in the in the internet is that we can get rid of all those intermediaries, that we won't need a Spotify to distribute music. So that there is a solution, technical solution coming in, in the technological world. It's not clear to me, actually, in the case of the artisanal economy, that there are big parties making big money. So typically what happens you know, you've got local producers who contribute to a farmer's market, which supplies a place for people to buy the food they want to make that dinner on Friday or Saturday night that they're so looking forward to. And so while no one is making a fortune, it's not clear that there's necessarily any big company that's taking the lion's share. Quote a, a wonderful article in the in the New York Times about four or five years ago that said, you know, enjoy your dinner at your fancy restaurant, but you should know that the farmers who created the food on your table have suffered and have struggled to make a living. I'd love to see that article written again, somebody doing that research again, and to see if we've made some progress. I think surely we have made some progress, but it's still a tough go for people. Well, I guess all farming is difficult. And so often what you see is that people create a kind of gig economy where you have the farm but you also have some a couple of other enterprises together supplying the income the family needs to survive. So I think we're still at that kind of gig economy stage, but I think we're looking forward to, we're making progress towards the idea that the producers of the artisanal economy can sustain a good living from that practice. We decry the lowest common denominator as a factor in production, whether it be of products or culture, but is the concept of a mass market inherently bad? Uh, no, I don't think it's inherently bad. But the great thing about the artisanal approach is, is that it's very good at customization and personalization and individuation. It's almost always an expression of the individuality of the producer who, who just likes to carve wood this way or just likes to craft felt 
this way. And, and then it speaks to consumers, not as a kind of, oh, okay, this is the way we make felt toys. I write about a felt toy in the book. All the producers take their own path to the production of a felt toy, and then people embrace it for a variety of reasons. But what's missing in all of that, actually, and this is a point worth making, is the brand. And that brand has traditionally, in a mass marketing society, been the kind of stamp that makes things uniform. And that's what's missing here. So you just get much more individuation, much more individuality in this artisanal approach. Artisans often strive to be independent operators, but you talk about how it's tough because it's almost like a self-published author. They have to take on the role of editor and marketer and publisher and so much. So how can you be independent, but also rely on people to buy your stuff? Yeah, as you say, it's extremely difficult. And I talked to one guy who's making a pretty good living carving wood stands for people's iPads. And he finally got out of the business, he said. And I said, oh, what, what happened? Why? And he said, I couldn't do the marketing. I couldn't figure out the marketing. And I thought, oh my God, the marketing is not, can't be more difficult than actually the, the carving that you're doing here. But for him, it was. So it's a challenge. You know, we have new educational resources available online, and I hope somebody will put together a bundle for artisans so that they can do all the things they need to do. Artisans are also pretty good. The farmer's market is always a great example of this, are pretty good at cooperating with one another to share resources and to solve problems in, in a common way. So I think that sometimes is, is the solution for them. There's, there's somebody who's really good at the bookkeeping and there's somebody who actually turns out to be really good at the marketing. People can divide the labor and, and go from there. We're starting to creep back in toward specialization inside organizations there. <laughs> yeah. The nice thing here is that there isn't some great overbearing corporation that can decide how people will make these connections and how they will work out these problems. So I did some of the research for the book in Kentucky, and it was fascinating to see how people would draw this distinction between their life on the ground and their farm and their immediate community as a kind of quite individuated thing. They had a clear sense of this is my farm. These are my responsibilities. Here's what I owe to my family. Here's what I owe to the community. Even as they had this sense of the gifts they gave the community in the form of quite joyful, happy kinds of gestures, working on roads that needed fixing. And, and so you had a kind of, I came to think of it, they, they had created a grid below that specified what everybody had to do for their own purposes, and a dome above where everybody was making contributions that everybody else had access to. And it felt like a nice, at least in Kentucky, a nice balance between those two objectives. Because you talked about Thomas Massey, who lived there in Kentucky, and his values may not have necessarily overlapped with his neighbors there in eastern Kentucky. Right. That's kind of an interesting story. This is a guy who went to MIT and took a couple of uh, degrees. And and you would expect a guy like that just to keep going. But no, he can't. It's fascinating to talk to people in Kentucky. And, you know, that connection is so strong. I finally said to somebody, you know, what's the secret of this connection? And he said, Kentucky is the only place that gives you a tattoo on the inside. I thought, oh, that's a cool way of putting it. Anyhow, so Thomas Massey's one of those people. He left, he comes back, and he starts building. This is very grid. Right? He starts building a world of his own that's well, forgive the irony here, off the grid. He's not using electricity. He's not using water. He's built his own self-contained world. 
And the state gets a hold of this and they say, wait a second, there are all these bylaws and you're breaking them. And he says, actually, I'll decide the rules that govern my life. And his neighbors so approve of this that they they vote for him to go to Congress, which is where he is now. But he's this interesting combination of free, generous and open-handed on the one side and fiercely kind of independent on the other. Now, how did you select the towns of Darien and Stamford, Connecticut, and Bowling Green, Kentucky, for your research? I live in a little town called Rowayton, which is not far from Darien. One of the people I worked on this project was a guy called Sam Ford. I met him at MIT. We're good friends. And we were thinking about the artisanal revolution as a way of solving some of the problems of opioid addiction which at the time that we were working together was, you know, the the stats were horrifying. How many people were becoming addicted and how many people were, in some cases, succumbing, dying as a result of the addiction. It remains a problem. I don't mean to suggest that somehow we solved it. But our notion was, hey, as people get pushed out of the industrial economy, they might think about the artisanal economy as an option. So we created a website that sort of was a kind of grab bag of of resources, a kind of our inspiration was the whole earth catalog to go back to that. And our notion was, listen, you have all of these options within, and when you started itemizing them, it's amazing how many different pieces of the artisanal economy there are. They are various. And so people can suit themselves. And what we wanted to do, give them access to resources just in the manner of the whole earth catalog. So that's what we did. And it was out of that eventually that the book came. I thought it was very interesting in talking about the shift from the post-World War II mass-produced economy and then going into the uh, conspicuous consumption, especially going into the 80s. And I grew up part of my time in the rural South. And so having your own garden and hunting and putting up vegetables in the fall, canning vegetables, was a big thing all through the 80s and 90s. And it's really started to fall off since then. And now it seems we have our own conspicuous consumption with $90,000 pickup trucks and things along those lines. That's interesting. I'm Canadian. And so everything American is sort of surprised to me. And much of this book was written during COVID when suddenly I lost all my mobility. So I had to work with the data I had on hand, but I would have loved to have gone. That would have been a very interesting opportunity for research. I just think we, on some trends, we tend to be about 30 years behind. That's interesting. And so I think a lot of kind of the culture things that hit America in the 50s, you know, took until the 80s to hit in the South. And then what happened in the 90s is just now really starting to take place in the South. Oh, that's fascinating. That is really interesting. It's funny that Canadians sometimes feel quite at home at the South in one particular way, and that is that there's a kind of politesse, there's a kind of gentility or something, the way Southerners interact with one another, with a real sense of there is a kind of etiquette here for interaction. Canadians are all about that, so I always feel quite at home when when I'm in the South. There's a podcast I listen to, and they call Finding That Thing That You Were Seemingly Made To Do and hadn't mm-hmm. known before called Finding Your Duck. It was all about having a breed of a dog that was bred to hunt ducks, but had never hunted ducks, and finally sees a duck in the wild at first, and it finally realizes why it, why it's there. And so it seems, you know, these people have been lucky enough to find their ducks, but I think most of us don't think our duck is looking at spreadsheets all day long either. No, that's for sure. Well, that's one of the shifts, certainly, that as an anthropologist, I'm seeing in American culture is the shift from an extrinsic approach to the world, where you work on things to be professionally accomplished, to get an income, 
to make your way into the corp and up the corporation or into a society and up the social ladder to a world that says the extrinsic is much less important than the intrinsic. It's the moment. I want to exist in the moment and, and I want to occupy the moment as fully as I can. So the last thing I want to do is is distract myself with notions of, golly, I'd like to get a new car or, oh my God, wouldn't it be great to have a new job? Those things are much less important. And I think when the GPS, as it were, of our culture changes from extrinsic to intrinsic, I think the artisanal approach to things begins to become even more powerful because it is so mindful, right? When you're making something, you are not making it to fill a quota necessarily and not making it to fit a budget or to meet deadlines or to satisfy that spreadsheet. You're making it for the pleasures of the connection with the, the wood or the metal or the organic materials you're working with. It seems that one of the hallmarks of the artisanal movement is earnestness. And there are those out there who cannot let earnestness pass by unsatirized. Yeah, and right. it just seems that people are having a hard time sometimes with the earnestness that's inside the movement. Yeah. And the last couple of chapters in the book attempt to engage the reader with this idea that, in fact, the artisanal communities that end up being quite inclined to say, look, these are the rules by which we live our lives. And here are the various things we, you know, forsake when we enter in, you know, there's something almost monastic about some artisanal communities and quite controlling or flattening. And my notion is like, if artisans want the artisanal message to colonize the rest of America, they can't cut themselves off from the great creativity, the, the great fecundity of American culture. We just have this endless in cultural invention taking place constantly. If the artisan says, that's not for me, it's not for us, we don't do that, they end up working in a palette of grays in a larger culture that uses the whole palette. So, of course, any community can choose any approach it wishes, but it seems to me a way of that the artisanal community that is narrow in that way prevents itself from doing the very thing that I think artisans would like to have happen, which is to colonize the whole. Orthodoxy does tend to limit the growth of an organization and, and group. Yeah, exactly so. Now, I actually did interview David Reese, who you write about, who kind of mocked the movement with his artisanal pencil sharpening book. Did you? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah and this was 10 years ago. It, it was a really fun time because he obviously was satirizing the movement, but I think he genuinely did enjoy sharpening pencils. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, because he set up a service where he would charge you fifteen dollars postpaid to sharpen your pencil for you. <laughs> That's great, and I love that sense of humor. And it really does, I think, give us a chance to break from some of the the orthodoxies this year. You know, one of which is the origin story or origin myth that that a lot of startups that are artisanal in nature tend to use. And it's all, as I say in the book, it's always two guys. I mean, very occasionally it's a man and a woman. Very occasionally it's it's two women. But almost always it's two guys, who, and it's always the same story. They were sitting around one night having a beer, and they said to themselves, hey, I wonder why we couldn't have a different kind of razor or couldn't have a different kind of soap or a different kind of – and it's like always the same story. And I was talking to a woman who was mentoring small businesses – I was sharing this with her and she just rolled her eyes and she said, now everybody says that, even if it's not true. It's like garages in Silicon Valley, right? They all tell the same story. And I said, can you talk them out of it? And she said, it's very difficult. 
<laughs> that message was co-opted back in the 80s with the, the Bartles and James wine coolers from Ernest and Julio Gallo. Mm, they, yes. they they created this fictional duo, Bartles and James, to oh, say, they? yeah. Yeah, there yeah. were a couple of, well, not even actors. They were they were non-professionals. But they right. selected a couple of guys to serve as the front for their wine cooler operation. And they give it a, a fake name of two guys who come together to make this tasty treat for people who don't like hard liquor. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, then that's the kind of mass marketing that I think we're, so I guess it's a little better that in the present era, it's now two guys who actually do know one another for whom this was a you know, thing that occurred to them and a thing they did. But to the extent that everybody's saying it, it's, it feels like a lost opportunity, doesn't it? You know, you speak of the corporations co-opting the language of the artisan movement, and it seems that this is going to demand a constant reinvention to stay ahead of this corporate predation of language. There's this connection, you say, that artisans have with the past. Is there enough of the past to mind to always stay in front of the corporate need for the new thing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think happily what's happening here is that in many cases when the corporation helps itself to artisanal uh, language and imagery, there was a cheese company recently that created an ad that showed a family mucking about in their muddy backyard in the vegetable patch that clearly they were growing themselves, all of which was to evoke the idea that this cheese made in, in an industrial factory in huge quantities was, in fact, an artisanal cheese. I think it was a beautifully crafted ad. That was, you know, somebody with real talent had, had crafted this cultural artifact. But in point of fact, there was no getting around the fact that it was a, a lie from top to bottom. So I think our media literacy these days is so high. Everybody's so good, so quick to detect inauthenticity of this kind, so quick to decode an advertising as, as fake, that I think we're we're less inclined to fall for that stuff. And I think I see corporations less inclined to, to try it on because they know that this attempt at manipulation is, is almost always discovered by the consumer. I discovered one a few years ago. A company had introduced a sliced bread line called Artisano, and someone I knew had spoken favorably of it, and I bought a loaf, and it was essentially pound cake. It was so overly sweet <laughs> and soft and mushy and... It just blew my mind that it could not be any more different from what I was expecting out of a bread named that. <laughs> That's great. So they try it on, but it doesn't last for long. I think it's the good news. Now, at the end, I guess it's an essay that you had published previously about your Uncle Meyer. Right. And it made me think with you talking about his wallet and how these artifacts, these kind of like Proustian Madeleines, have these controls over our memories. And I thought about when I was grieving some family members who had passed and that all that I had left from them was like consumer products. Oh, and yep. the concept of the, the mass market heirloom just really depressed me. Right. No, absolutely. And that's one of those deals where I think it, 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 it doesn't really work. In Uncle Meyer's case, you'll forgive me if I get emotional. Um, it's a wallet made by his mom uh, as he was escaping um, anti-Semitism in Europe. Sorry. Sorry. Right. I'll leave it. I encourage everyone to, to read that. It's, it is touching and points to that what we do for each other means so much. Mm -hmm. And to outsource that to a corporation sometimes is not the way to go. Well said. <clears throat> well said.
while there is a hearkening to the good old days, my fear that it'll become too much like the good old days and that we'll have <laughs> a few ultra-wealthy and we'll be the humble tradespeople who serve their whims mm. and desires. To the extent that we can fashion lives, families and lives and, and communities that are rich in all of the things you've just talked about, I think maybe that's our, you know, those people with their super yachts may end up envying those who have these live in these beautifully human scale communities that may be the, the life that everybody wants to lead. You know, I have to say, I hope I'm not a Luddite. Capitalism has done astounding things for us and for our standard of living and for the the kinds of innovations we have access to. So it would be wrong for, I think, all of us to repudiate all of that. But it feels as if maybe the connection might be that we end with capitalism and, and some kinds of industrial production and big businesses will be kind of the, the backstory of our culture, um, the infrastructure, if you want. And what happens front stage, so that would be the backstage, what happens front stage, it looks very much like the world that happens when artisans craft communities for themselves and for the rest of us. Because I was thinking that industrial production many times does respond to genuine problems we have in our lives. You yeah. think about the, the damage the internal combustion engine does with global climate change right now, but at the time it was solving the problem of tons of horse manure being produced on city streets every day right. and, and yeah. the disease that was coming from that. Yeah. So we seem to be caught in this tension between technology and human and not understanding that technology is a part of humanity in its way. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a distilled aspect of humanity. Yes, exactly. We have tremendous ingenuity and you give us a new medium and we pour our ingenuity into that medium. And there are always happy outcomes because the world is, is easier. As, as you say, certain things are now possible and other problems ensue. So uh, it's always a kind of race. So many of us pursue kind of like a frictionless existence. Mm. And we forget that friction is very important to our existence. Mm. We couldn't yeah. walk without friction. Yeah, it's like stress, isn't it? Selye, the guy who invented the notion of stress, said, no, no, you don't want to have no stress in your life. You want to have some stress because it engages you. It brings you out of yourself, encourages you to accomplish things in the world. So, yeah, absolutely. So how do you expand this idea of the artisanal movement? How, how do you think it interacts with our current political situations in the West? The last chapter, I have a go at imagining the artisanal community that I think might now be emerging. And I would love to hear people about whether, in fact, there is evidence that this is happening. But with the advent of COVID, we had many, many people leaving big cities and going to smaller towns and sometimes to little villages. And they took their big city incomes with them, which meant that those little towns now had access to more capital and they now had uh, resources to work with and certainly more, more people with which to kind of scale up the economies they were building. So I think COVID, for all of the horrors that it inflicted upon us, had the effect of redistributing wealth out of the cities into smaller towns. And those smaller towns began to build out to make themselves more substantial. And I think that raises a whole set of 
political problems. You know, you get, what did Rousseau say, right? That the town shouldn't be any bigger than the oak tree under which people meet. The artisanal city or colony, as I like to think about it, will certainly be bigger than that. And it has to accomplish certain kinds of scale in order to be able to do what it wants to do as a community. But I think as that happens, then you now have a community that has to learn to be more porous. It needs to be able to reach out to the the world beyond and and to circulate, pulling things in, sending things out. You know, this this is back to the the notion we were talking about a moment ago, that what I think you don't want to be as an artisanal community is completely kind of sealed shut and insular. So that's a political problem for this growing artisanal colony. How does it manage the boundary? How does it create a porous boundary that makes it possible to connect with external worlds? And then how does it especially, and I think this is critical, is to pull people into the colony who are not conventionally minded artisans, which is to say, I think you want to pull in engineers who would not typically be thought of as artisans. You want to pull in a variety of problem solvers who typically would be seen to be, oh, no, this guy just totally doesn't get the proposition. We need to be inclusive in every respect, but inclusive even in this respect. And that'll be an an interesting problem and another chance or another thing that will encourage us, I think, to make that even as we grow, to make the boundary more porous. Because it seems like it it could be a trap to fall into that you start to do things artisanally and then you understand that there are efficiencies you can make in your process and then you wind back up at industrial design. Right, exactly. And that's another interesting political problem, isn't it, is to watch people. In fact, I talk about a woman in the book who says, oh my God, the way I make, uh, I think it's beer, is really it's really labor intensive, but I stick with it because it is kind of an article of faith in the artisanal world. So that's a lovely piece of kind of managerial contemplation that she has to go through to figure out, okay, you know, can I scale up a little more and how would I scale up? And how, could I do it in a manner that wouldn't mean that I would end up losing sight of the beautiful human scale that is almost the first principle of, of the artisanal approach? Well, Grant, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today and talking about the the artisanal movement. It's one that seems in such opposition with our current society and technology, but I think it's one that might actually restore our humanity in the process. uh, From your lips to God's ears, Stephen. And thank you so much for the chance to chat. It's been a real pleasure. Take care now. Thank you. Pleasure. Grant McCracken is the author of Return of the Artisan, How America Went from Industrial to Handmade, which is published by Simon Element, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.